Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 42 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. It's also brought to you this week by Peghead Nation. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass, you'll learn bluegrass, old-time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of mandolin instructors with courses including beginning mandolin, intermediate bluegrass mandolin, and the brand new course, uh, Bluegrass Mandolin Fingerboard Method with Sharon Gilchrist, Bluegrass Mandolin Jam Favorites and the Advancing Mandolinist with Joe K. Walsh, Monroe-style mandolin with Mike Compton, Melodic Mandolin Tunes with John Reichman, Chord Melody Mandolin with Aaron Weinstein, Irish Mandolin with Marla Feibish, and Theory for Mandolin and Fiddle with Chad Manning. Courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER at checkout. Hope you all are having yourselves a great week. Things are slowly, slowly creeping back to normal. want to thank everybody for listening. Um, this is a great episode with Emery Lester just just such a great player and a genuinely nice person. I'm excited for you to hear that. Uh, if you get a chance, please just hit subscribe on whatever uh, podcast platform you're listening to. Go over to Spotify. We got some of the songs that are available on Spotify from Emery um, to listen to the full versions at the Mandolins of Beer playlist. Uh, go to mandolinsandbeer.com and, and you can go to my Patreon page, actually. I just posted up uh, three new videos. Uh, breaking down, I talked a little bit about it last week, breaking down uh, Rabbit in a Log in the key of G, kind of going out and how you find the melody from the vocal, and then some different licks between double stops and tremolo and some ideas like that to build up a solo. So that's all there. It's eight bucks a month, or you can go there. There's a $4 a month option if you just want to support the podcast. And I really do appreciate all your support and everybody who's taken the time to, to click like and subscribe and follow on Instagram and all that great stuff. So thank you so much. And uh, let's just get into the episode here with Emery Lester. Cheers, everybody. Take care. Now I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Emery Lester. Emery, how are you today, buddy? Doing really good. Great to talk to you today. Man, great to talk to you as well. I really appreciate you taking the time here on a uh, on a weekend. You know, free time is a premium, and I really appreciate you doing it here today on a Sunday, no less. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. So, what have you been? What's uh, what's been going on in your world here? I know you have a you have a, a daytime thing, but are you uh, had any of your stuff musically been affected by any of the recent events of the pandemic and such? Well, um, of course, there were a lot of events scheduled this year, uh, this summer, um, for us, and pretty much all of them have been postponed or canceled. And uh, of course, that's happened with most musicians here. Uh, so no different with me. Um, but luckily for me, uh, it seems like most of the events that I've been scheduled for have been postponed to 2021 and, uh, they're keeping the, the same acts or artists and such. So I'll just have to wait a little longer, <laughs> but we'll get there. And I have a lot of faith in, in the world and humanity, and hopefully this will all come out to, in, uh, to be good. You know? yeah, and where do you call home? 
Uh, right now, I live in a little town called Everett, Ontario, Canada, which is just north of Toronto. Oh, okay. Um, of course, yeah. And, uh, of course, I was born and raised in Virginia. I was actually born in Washington, D.C., of all places. Uh, grew up in grew up in Northern Virginia. Lived most of my life there, school and college and such, and and uh, moved up here. Uh, and of course, they're they're always happy to announce, you know, the Canadian mandolin is Emory Lester, and uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. But it's really not quite that. But anyway, it is a nice place to live, and yeah, we're very fortunate. Yeah. So, um, how'd you uh, how'd you find yourself playing a mandolin? Well, that's a long story, of course, and it goes way back to the early days when I was really tiny, and uh, I was fortunate enough, my brother and I, Dale, uh, he's uh, three years older than I am, but the two of us, uh, you know, we grew up in a musical family. Uh, my father, my uncles all played professionally. My grandfather was an old-time fiddler in southwest Virginia, and so, you know, as we were growing up, we not only got to hear the music when we were small uh but we got to experience it and watch it and you know when they got together to play and you know so it was kind of a you know it was definitely enjoyment for sure in every way and uh, of course as little kids you know uh to put this correctly you know we just wanted to do it you know like you know we want to do it too and so it didn't take us long to uh to start to play plastic instruments to start out with you know thinking we sounded like you know, the top-notch players and <laughs> and uh, dreaming and all this until we actually got a real instrument and found out how good we really were and uh, the fact that we were going to have to practice and, and make something of it. Uh, but it was always a joy, a, ch- a challenge, but always a joy and uh, was on our minds all the time. And uh, so we got to play, you know, with our relatives. And, and my dad, who was uh, Jake Lester, who was a, a noted banjo player back then, uh, he stepped back a little bit from some of his uh, playing to take the two little boys around and show them off, and we made a family band and oh, cool. uh, did a lot of things back then. We actually were uh, we actually got to uh, guest appearance on the old uh, Don Reno and Bill Harrell and Tennessee Cutups television show on oh, wow. WDCA Channel 20 in Washington D.C. and I was so small with my fiddle that I they had to get a milk carton and put it up next to the microphone for me to stand on to meet to reach it. And uh, so I do remember that broadcast. It exists somewhere. But I, I the thing I remember the most was uh, they had a close up of me sawing away on my fiddle in the microphone and my my cowboy hat tipped forward and actually landed on the strings of the fiddle. But I didn't stop. I kept sawing away. And I had the honor of Don, of none other than Don Reno reaching over and pushing the hat up away from my strings, just give me a little help there. And uh, so that was uh, one of my early experiences of playing out, and uh, wow. but they're always fun memories. To, That's so to neat. How long did it take you? You started out on the fiddle? Started out on the fiddle and wow. uh, just basically that and guitar and uh, uh, did that for a long time until we got into you know, the high school and such. And then of course, rock and roll was always big. So we, my brother got into that first and I got into that next with him. And we were, you know, trying to do all the, the heavy metal guitar leads and guitar <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. And I know that's a silly thing, but in a way, but you know, at the time that's, that was cooler than playing a fiddle at that time. Sure. In school. And, uh, it, but I credit that time for, uh, you know, giving me the dexterity and the, 
you know, the ability to play cleanly and things that you kind of had to do playing that type of music on that instrument. You didn't, you weren't allowed to be kind of sort of halfway in technique. You know, you had to kind of have your technique together to play that anywhere correctly. So that really gave me uh, an advantage later on when I did start taking up the mandolin. So uh, it was, uh, who are the bands yeah. that you were listening to? Like the, uh, like the rock bands at that point. Oh, all, all of them for sure. We were into all of them. I know Kiss was big then. Yeah. Deep Purple was big. Um, you know, Led Zeppelin. Any any band that had like, a, of course, we were, you know, kind of really into the instrumental part of it. None of us could really sing, you know, that way. You had sure. to kind of be angry and have a, you know, <laughs> two strikes against the world to really be rebellious enough to sing that music correctly. And we never did, but but we liked to play the instruments, of course, and. And uh, so any uh, any of the players that were really playing really well at the time, of course, and, uh, you know, caught our ear and we sat around trying to make those sounds and learn how to do it. And uh, but uh, uh, it had a kind of an interesting effect again because it kind of formed technique a little bit in advance. And, you know, unbeknownst, of course, we didn't you know, I wasn't doing it for that reason, but that's what kind of happened in hindsight. You know? Yeah. And so then what um, what started you drawing you? back from the the electric side of things to to the mandolin well at the same time we were playing rock and roll my father was still doing gigs locally there in the northern virginia area with uh benny and valley kane and that's a name that some may remember from way back uh benny kane was a mandolin player and a wonderful wonderful friend and gentleman and he and valley used to have a local bluegrass band and you know they had a couple records out at the time and but I remember one time uh, my dad wanted me to come down. I forget exactly where the reason for it, um, but he wanted me to come down and hear him play with them at a Shakey's Pizza restaurant. And um, so we walked in there, and you know he's playing the banjo, and Benny's got the mandolin, and I. And there was a band um, that was there, a young talent uh, that was there to play, you know, for the intermission. And Benny came over and asked me if I wanted to play mandolin with this band at the intermission. And I kind of chuckled because I said, well, Benny, I haven't played much of a mandolin. You know, I mean, I know it's like a fiddle, but I mean, and then um, the uh, young band came in. And of course, it was three young ladies uh, about my age. So (laughs) obviously, I'm like, you know, uh, well, where's that mandolin there, Benny? Uh, I'll give it a shot. Let's give her. Let's give her a shot. <laughs> that's a that's a true story. That's great. And I remember getting up there and feeling like, oh, this is a little bit comical because I really don't know, you know, much about. It. I know you're supposed to chop, so I made some sort of chord and tried to chop, and then I took a solo because I mean I was experienced in bluegrass. I understood the workings of bluegrass, of course. So I knew that there was a break, and I knew that the, you know you played long. So, but when I played my break, I got all this applause, and I really don't know why. I thought it was really funny, <laughs> like maybe they're just being kind to me. But, you know, in hindsight, again, I think it was the fact that I had some sort of technique built up mm-hmm. inadvertently uh, and used it. So uh, it was exciting, like, hey, this is, uh, is kind of cool, you know, I enjoy this. So uh, that's where it all started right there as far as mandolin. And I think the next thing that happened was I got a hold of a – record album uh, the award-winning country gentleman of course that's the one that doyle Lawson played all the great you know well he played great mandolin on all of them but that one in particular
And when I heard some of those songs and some of those breaks he took, well, that was it. That was like the, the fishing hook got a hold of me then. And it was, <laughs> it was all, all forward from there. Yeah. yeah, well, he's so good. So good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see why you would get, get stuck there. What are some uh, What are some other things that, uh, besides Doyle Loss, were there any other players that you really dove into at that point, too? Oh, well, well, he was the first one. And, of course, Jimmy Goodrow, who uh, I need to mention Jimmy because Jimmy is such a great, great friend of mine. And actually uh, did some great things for my career early on. And, this, you know, he, I really get, need to give him some credit for <clears throat> some of my albums like Pale Rider, who he got behind and uh, supported. And, you know, he got excited about me, um, you know, long, well, it was long after I got excited about him, of course, but but these, you know, Jimmy and Doyle both, uh, you know, were playing the mandolin in a way that I really at that time hadn't heard, which is, you know, they were playing it carefully, you know, using technique and playing with, the, you know, clean notes and full tone and re- really, really letting me hear what the instrument could sound like and what it does sound like. And, you know, and as you know, uh, early on before that, there were players that didn't quite have the technique that they have today in today's world. Right. And so it was hard for me to really identify with it early on, um, you know, how good it could be because I hadn't sat with one. Uh, but after hearing those guys play, uh, that was very exciting because, you know, when obviously, you know, yourself and and everybody that listens to the podcast, as soon as you hear a mandolin played with full tone, uh, it's uh, like nothing else. And, you know, it was certainly an inspiration and just made me want to play all the time at that point. And, and of course, you know, like, like some of the folks you've interviewed before, I spent the time learning every break, every note, <laughs> everything on these records, and uh, sometimes not getting up until, you know, I got it. You know, you'd sit there and I'm like, I'm not going to sleep tonight until I get this. <laughs> you know, I want to know I can play that break when I go to sleep tonight. So sometimes my mother would find me in there with the mandolin, you know, lay on top of me. I'm sleeping away. And uh, so we kept trying, but, but we learned them all. And, uh, you know, all those breaks were great. And, and um, you know, I don't know if Doyle listens to this, but Doyle, uh, he's, he just, you know, is such an inspiration to so many and, and I have to hang my head on, on all that he did for sure. And then, you know, I know he, he did an album called Tennessee Dream. featured album of his playing which up to that point you know we had to wait for his mandolin breaks on country gentleman albums to really hear him <laughs> right but uh but that record you know it was almost like he said all right you you know you got all this now try this 
<laughs> oh, uh, it took a lot longer. But again, you know, the lessons from learning that, just just figuring that stuff out, are just immeasurable. You know, and and still, you know, I reap the benefits of that today. And uh, anyone else that's done that knows that knows that too. That's so cool. Yeah, Doyle's been on the podcast, and what a nice guy. It does a oh yeah fountain of knowledge and a gentleman. <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's like nervous to call him. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got too many stories to tell you in an hour, but I could tell you a bunch more there. But uh, but anyway, he's a he's just one of one of a kind and a, and a true, true in, in, uh, musician like no other that I've run into. So. so now is Pale Rider, is that out of print? That the album itself? Um, Today it is. <laughs> Tomorrow <Yeah>. it isn't. <laughs> um, yeah, some of the projects, of course, you know, not being a full-time touring musician all the time, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes the resources get um, put into the latest projects. Sure, sure. You know, Absolutely. as a business line. And uh, But, you know, some of these projects seem to find a second life and a second uh line of interest so um i do have plans to get that back here on the market here shortly oh so, man uh, let me know and i'll definitely uh announce it on whatever you know whatever how whatever correlates with any of these episodes coming up i'll i'll definitely plug it because i know um i mean when talking with andy wood uh, and i'm not sure if you're familiar mm-hmm. with andy's playing or not he's definitely a little bit more of a, like electric guitar player but he started out on mandolin and for him well i can relate to that <laughs> yeah no kidding <laughs> And, uh, yeah, I totally can relate to that. And I appreciate Andy mentioning it. Um, of course, uh, you know, you make these albums, you know, you're inspired to make these albums and you never really know, you know, especially as the years go by, you know, who hears them or, um, who's affected by them. Of course, you know, in my world, I'm affected by things that Doyle Lawson, David Grisman, all these folks made. And so I don't really think about my own doing the same, but it is a, it is a neat hand me down sort of philosophy where you know when you do make a record and uh you know then you realize it did inspire somebody you know in some way and it's a it's a great feeling but uh even though i don't really feel you know worthy of that uh but you know as many will tell you uh but still i'm appreciative of it and i think it's great yeah well it inspired um a young mandolin player out there i believe chris thiele um, there's a, is there a story out there about Chris and, and the, and the album Pale Rider? Yes. Uh, you know, Chris, um, he, when I first met him, he was one of the tiniest people I'd ever met holding a mandolin. <laughs> he was really small. Um, now I don't even know if he would even remember that, but that was, um, but that was at one of the folk festivals up, up here in Canada. And, Chris had just um, was playing with Richard Green and the Grass is Greener, I think is the band name at the time. And uh, of course, the you know the legend had already begun about the you know the young man with the mandolin. You know, you'll run into him sometime today, kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, I did, and uh, you know, it's always a joy to see that. And of course, I gave him my Pale Rider album. I'd sit here, you know, like to remember me by, I guess, more than anything. And uh, so um, I get a I get a letter a few weeks later uh, in the mail from him and his mom, and of course in this letter he had told me how much he liked the CD and that he had learned the song Pale Rider and actually used it to win a contest. 
uh, and of course, this is this is what I mean by getting things that you you don't really realize how something might inspire somebody. Uh, but that was great. And then I remember the first time too. I think it was at the IBMA convention back then in the '90s. This was in might have been the early '90s or mid '90s or something. And I remember running into him again. I said, "Play, play me that song. Play me that Pale Rider." And uh, you know, I didn't really think that that was so easy to learn at the time. I was pretty, you know, <laughs> a lot of notes in that. Yeah. Um, so he just said, "Does it sound like this?" And of course, he ripped it off perfectly. And all I could say was, <laughs> "Yes, that's it." <laughs> 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 so uh, the rest is history. And uh, you know, I'm um, pretty proud of Chris and all he's done. And of course, you know what he's, you know, all his success and where he's at today. And you know, quite an entertainer and gentleman, and uh, you know, he's another ceases to amaze with the mandolin. But you know, there's some elements to his playing that I feel like, you know, if he was if he was Frankenstein, I sort of assisted Doctor Frankenstein a little bit, maybe. Oh, I would agree. And oh, I that. can hear some of that in it, and I'm proud of that. Uh, that's great. Yeah. yeah. Um. I, I. There's a couple songs, especially even on like his first recording. I think maybe Shadow Ridge, and I think is the one that really. Yeah. When I heard that, I was like, oh wow, that. Um, you can definitely hear the similarities in the, especially that clean you have such a distinct tone with that clean full sound you know what i mean even at at hyper yeah. speeds which is we'll talk about that yeah. in a bit too because i yeah people, well, i appreciate yeah man any any association i appreciate you know? <laughs> <laughs> um so after you how did you eventually start your recording career that you were doing was it um it, was it playing with bands? How did how did everything from going playing with these ladies for the first time at a jam <laughs> in a pizza place take you to the next level there? Well, it just again, you know, trying to play the mandolin as good as I could, and you know, I I personally enjoyed hearing, you know, all the notes played cleanly, you know, which was what Doyle and Jimmy were doing, and 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 some of those players, and so I was trying to do that so you know if i missed a note i was very aware of it um you know and wanted to go work on that but that was kind of driven by myself and my own want to sound that way i wasn't trying to like be hot or be good or be competitive or any of that kind of thing uh but you know i just wanted to play it well and that's you know i enjoyed that and i know others enjoyed it for sure at the time so that kind of inspired me on and again, after making a couple albums with a couple of bands there, you know, in the mid seventies or so, I realized that, you know, like the guy told me, uh, that if I had a project of my own, then, um, you know, that would help my personal career and help, you know, my name be known a little more and such. So the first one I made was called Jerusalem Ridge, which was back in the early eighties, I think. And, uh, that one, uh, you know, it's mostly bluegrass kind of songs and of course all mandolin instrumentals, of course. Uh, but I had some interest in doing music that was different other than bluegrass, too. I think I, of all the crazy ideas, I, I did a version of The Lonely Bull, which is a Herb Alpert and Tijuana Brass hit on the mandolin. And, like, that's like, you know, that's taking your neck out there to try that <laughs> one. Uh, but I did. and uh, But I think that embodies a lot of kind of what I've done because it's, you know, I did it because I liked it. You know, I did it because mm -hmm. it was a great song and it moved me, and I wanted to try to play it. And I wasn't thinking about, well, geez, you know, how are the people at the Gettysburg Bluegrass Festival who are, you know, going to think of this, you right, know, the traditional right. bluegrass world? 
I just wanted to play what I wanted to play. And, uh, uh, but, but, you know, that was an experience there and I got to learn about recording and such. And, you know, I got into, of course, the, the, the David Grisman music really hit me hard, like everybody and sent me down a path and opened the door, uh, where it was okay to actually play something other than bluegrass and experiment with the instrument, different settings. And, uh, that certainly affected me big time. And, uh, you know, I made another record after Jerusalem Ridge called Mando Motion, and that was all the different songs I had tried to make that were of the new acoustic David Grisland style music of my own. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I think that's the also the first project where I played almost everything. You know, I wrote everything that I played, so I actually, you know, had compositions there. So that was a new frontier as well. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, those yeah. were the first two and set me on a path. And you're a multi-instrumentalist, like you're, you play um, a, a, a lot of the instruments on these recordings, if not all of them on some of them. Well, that, uh, you know, that happened uh, mainly, well, of course, out of interest for one, but, but the funny thing is that I couldn't find musicians locally there in Northern Virginia at that time that could play the kind of things on these instruments that I wanted to have. Um, of course, I wasn't as connected as some, and I couldn't just call up Tony Rice or J.D. Crow or <laughs> right. or these folks. And uh, so I ended up having to, to learn this stuff on my own. And um, one of my biggest mandolin influences, oddly enough, is Tony Rice. Because, yeah. uh, you know, learning the guitar like that, when you have, you know, you got to learn how to, you know, do all that cross-picking and picking in and out of those chords and that rhythm and you know, it kind of bled into my mandolin style uh, after doing that on the guitar. And that's kind of an uh, what they call a happy accident. <laughs> you know, funny thing happened on the way to, you know, kind of. And uh, but that the cross picking thing became a big sort of a thing in my mandolin style. And that's where it came from. So I kind of owe him for that one, too. And uh, but but just, you know, trying to get the sounds I wanted, you know, on these records, you know, I wanted to sound like those guys. And uh, I ended up having to do, you know, most of the stuff myself. And, you know, that's another thing, because, you know, you not only learn these instruments, but you have to learn how they work with the other instruments. You know, how do they complement the other instruments each? How do you come up with a total sound that doesn't sound like one guy's playing everything? You know, uh, how do you know, and, and like that. So that's, that's always fascinated me there. And, uh, you know, I've always enjoyed doing that even all the way up to now, you know, when you, um, when you just have, uh, excuse me, when you do stuff in the studio, did you, did you really delve into like the different mics and placement in different things like that as well to get these tones? Or was it more just the instrumental approach? No, I've never really been totally, completely 100% knowledgeable of all the, the technical side of this equipment and all, um, you know, I do use a couple. I do use a couple of Neumann KM84s when I record my mandolin. So I mean, that seems to be consistent with most players that know about them. And um, but but generally, I kind of left some of that to those who did it best. You know, and just tried to make it good before it ever hit the mic. And I know Bill Emerson, who's another great inspiration and friend of mine, and uh, taught me a lot. A uh, great banjo player with Jimmy Martin and the Country Gentleman. Uh, but he told me that, you know, you got to get this stuff to sound good before it ever even gets to the mic. Oh, you know? absolutely. And, and uh, so I really, 
paid heed to that, you know, and I just really tried to make sure that what I played was sounding good before it ever, you know, made it to anything that could alter it or, or enhance it. You know? Yeah, for sure. As you mentioned uh, Led Zeppelin. There's a great story of John Bonham in the studio and they're getting takes and he'd go back in the control room and they'd listen. He's like, no, and he'd go back out and he'd record it again. And he ends up yeah. grabbing the uh, engineer by the collar and dragging him into the studio. Yeah. And he's like, you hear this? Make it sound like that. Just make it sound like I hear it. <laughs> That's so you know, great. what's interesting is that a lot of times on these record albums that influence and inspire us, you know, we hear a sound that captures us and we want to try to emulate that sound or we want to try to sound as good as that. So, you know, what happens is, you know, the person that's that's listened to this actually works on it to the point to where they actually can get these sounds, especially acoustically. But what's funny is that the the source or the what they were listening to to get these sounds to start with, often those artists were in there you know, they had 25, 30 takes to play it that way, <laughs> right. uh, to get the tone right. You know, they worked on it till it got to the point where it was, where it ended up. And, you know, and then when we hear the recordings, we feel like, well, geez, we got to sound like that now. You know, we, 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 we don't, we just got to sound like that all the time. Oh, sure. And so that's what they do. And a lot of the young players now that are, you know, there's so many great young mandolin players now that sound awesome. And, you know, they, they're a product of that progression. You know, they, they make sure they sound that good when they play every time they pick up the instrument. And um, that's kind of how these, these, you know, people improve. That's how this all improves over time and technique and tones. And that's the evolution of it. It's pretty fascinating. How did you sit down and work on, like, your, your tone and technique? Because it's really, really identifiable, and it is so clean and full. It just, it, it, listening to these recordings and then um, and the recordings that you had sent um, ahead of this interview, too, yeah. I'm just like, man, it's just so <laughs> full. appreciate that I really do no I, that means a lot and uh, you know because it, it means a lot to me to try to try to make it sound you know like that it, you know it's not always easy sure as anyone that plays this instrument knows I told uh, my buddy Evan Marshall out there one time uh, and, and <laughs> I told him that mandolins you know they don't want to be played well you know <laughs> they fight you back you know <laughs> yeah. sometimes they just don't want to sound like that and, and you have to win the battle with the mandolin a lot of times you know and uh, he enjoyed that I know and many <laughs> have but, but still uh, yeah I mean you know I'm listening to it as I play and and you know I, I I love it all the time but I really love it when I can get it to sound like that you know so so it goes down to you know everything that I teach which is uh, technique and things about it um, uh, you know the way your hands hold it and the way your technique goes about it like you know the 
I do a certain thing and, you know, I used to teach that that's how it should be done. And then of course, the thing about teaching is as soon as you tell somebody it should be done this way, somebody else will walk up doing it a completely different way and sound awesome. <laughs> so you really can't say that anymore. So I've learned that, you know, it's not really the mandolins that are too different, but the people that play them are, you know, right, hands right. come in a variety of sizes and shapes. Uh, human beings come in different sizes and shapes. Uh, so, you know, when someone picks up the instrument uh, and plays it, you know, they're often going to sound like they sound. You know, it doesn't really matter what the mandolin is. And uh, a lot of times I find, find that to be true. Um, for me, I just try to use what I call economy of motion. I try to move as, as little as possible with my hands and make them completely economical and not waste any motion. So it's really become a hobby um, and, and to try to, to, to move as little as possible. And, you know, like like how – how small an area does the pick really need to go back and forth to play a string? You know, how much tension, how much pressure, you know, your left hand, how close are your fingers to the, to the strings and frets? And, and, uh, do they have to really, you know, come from out in left field and come bombing in there, you know, <laughs> with, a, with a wild motion or, or can that be, uh, you know, retracted in and, and kind of, so if you, you know, if you have economy of motion or you're able to play with, with just little short movements, then you're not expending as much energy. Um, it becomes more comfortable. And then when you have to play fast, you kind of almost have the deck stacked in your favor uh, there to do the best you possibly can. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it's kind of built, you know, when it's built correctly, then it's there to use. And, you know, I've seen players that have this down to a science and it's amazing. And I've also seen players that struggle with it and, and you can tell right away why. And um, so, you know, I enjoy trying to help those that, you know, that, that need help in that area and watching them improve. And that's always been a joy. And you do Skype lessons for people out there listening who might want to sign up and take some lessons from you and get some of this wisdom directly from the source. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, I've done this. I've been teaching since 1978. That's a long time. Uh, back when my father was teaching banjo at a local music store in Manassas, Virginia, and he didn't have time to continue because he had a day job at the Washington, Washington Post newspaper. And uh, so here I am, 10th grade in high school, and he comes home one night and says, says, I want you to come down here and teach these people. I'm like, well, <laughs> I don't think so. He's like, well, you can do it. I'll sit with you. I'm like, well, I can't do that. And I credit him with getting me to go over there. And, you know, I took over those couple lessons. He stayed two or three lessons worth. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. So, um, you know, teaching banjo, mandolin, guitar, and, you know, some fiddle and such like that. But, uh, but yes, ever since about 2012 or 2011 or something like that, I've been doing online lessons. So I've been doing that for quite a long time. And uh, in my case, since I have a day job, you know, my time is – limited uh to evenings such during the week and, mm. and all but uh but i like working with people one-on-one -on -one. i've never really you know tried to do an online uh class or arrangement of folks or or what because you know i really want to see what the player's doing and you know one-on-one -on -one, and then i can help them directly because like i'd mentioned you know people come in all kinds of different shapes sizes and and mentalities too, sure, uh, and interests and things. So it's you know I find that challenging, you know, and that's how it's been for me um, uh, in my experience. And you do a lot of the camps though too. 
yes. uh, like the mandolin camps. Yes. You, get to, you, you know, you've done some quite a few. Actually, um, you were going to be in Michigan for the was it the Great Lakes or the Midwest banjo camp at the end of the Midwest banjo camp? Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, that one, like the others, is is postponed till twenty twenty one. But I'll be looking forward to going next year. I was going to try to shoot up there. Um, and, and see you there. Uh, Keith Billick, who has a podcast called Picky Fingers, a banjo podcast. I was going to be playing some yeah. gigs with him um, in a band that All he right. had put together in, in Michigan that week. And then he was going to that camp. And then, you know, like everything fell apart. And yeah. he's like, but man, you should shoot up there one day. Emory Lester's teaching there. I'm like, shut up. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so. uh, that's a fun camp there. Um, the Ken Perlman and of course Stan Werben with, uh, elderly puts on and, mm-hmm. uh, I've done it before. It's a, you know, very heavy banjo camp, a lot of banjo classes and only like one mandolin class. Mm-hmm. We're working on them. We're going to try to teach them, to get more of them over to the mandolin class. <laughs> I always kid them about that, but, uh, no, it's a great camp. And I, I, I have to thank another person, um, for my in my career, uh, Steve Kaufman. Oh yeah. Uh, Steve is uh, Steve believed in me back before I had done a lot of camps uh, in order enough to give me a chance to come to his uh, Kaufman camp and teach and and uh, that gave me you know a lot of profile and notoriety as a teacher you know as far as camps are concerned and uh, you know that was another one uh, that I was supposed to do this summer that I'm gonna have to wait for 2021 again on but. Uh, but he's had me back a number of times, uh, been there, you know, seven, eight times or more. And, uh, you know, I owe him a lot. And I just, if he's listening, I'm very grateful, Steve. I appreciate you believing in me. And that's uh, certainly helped me down the line many times. That's great. One of the things I love about your recordings as well and your and the recording career you've had is you aren't afraid to really stretch out and do different things or different arrangements of things. Like you've got traditional stuff out there and then you have jazzy stuff out there. Um, yeah, that you've done, and you know what what sways you to to put certain things on albums? Because on some albums, like Cruising the Eights, I think was the first one. Is it Cruising the Eight? Yeah. Um, I think it was the first one I owned by you after I'd heard Pale Rider on the yeah. Young Mando Masters, and it's just it's just like it's so cool, and you, you're not really sure <laughs> what's going to happen next when you first listen to it. So how do you sit down? Yeah, you know, and... I definitely got that point across because we didn't know what was going to happen next either when we were having we were making it. So that's good. Oh, oh that's great. So how do you approach recording uh, like well, that? Just... Well, like uh, again, I've I've been you know music has been personal for me. I've been a uh, you know uh, I've had my own interests and my own inspirations, um, things that have moved me, things that have moved me to play and record. Um, move me to write certain things, try certain things. Um, you know, uh, a few times it's been, you know, well, I want to play this because so-and-so did something like this, so I want to try it. But more than not, it's been, uh, you know, because something has inspired me or I've heard something that I've liked, and it may not have even been anything related. You know, it may have been something completely different. So, uh, you know, it made me want to try something else. Um I remember on Cruising the Eight there, there's a there's a song there, um, I think it's called Autumn Blue, if I remember right.
but a, a, a jazz artist named Craig Chiquico, who's a great guitar player and, and made some wonderful projects back in that new age era. Yeah. Uh, did this song and it's just like, you know, I loved all the songs, but this one just kept, I just kept wanting to hear it over and over again. And after you hear it enough times, it gets into your head and you're, next thing you know, you're trying to play it on a mandolin, you know, and like, what would that sound like? And I ended up doing the whole tune uh, on that cruise in the eight as much as like he did or tried to, and you use a mandolin as the main voice. Right, right. Uh, so it was a total experiment, but it was just kind of something I had to do because it was something that moved me and, and, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to do, and, uh, that still happens today. Like I have some things running around in my head now that you'll, you'll know about sooner or later and you're going to go, what, you know, (laughs) and, uh, but I, I, I just enjoy that. That's kind of how it's been for me, but. But I appreciate that, and uh, yeah, it's a, it's usually a mixed bag of, of all kinds of things, and uh, jazz, of course, with, you know, my, my lineage came from bluegrass, and then, of course, hearing Grisman and and um, and all that sent me down that road, and, you know, I wrote tunes like that and played like that and got together with musicians uh, over the years that played some of that. I remember playing with uh, Mike Mumford, the course he's a famous banjo player now with frank sullivan but i remember he can remember the days when we got together and tried to play dog music um and such and and like that and james han and some of these guys i knew and and eventually met a guy named francois vola who's a frenchman uh who moved over to this part of the world and came to virginia and i met him and of course he uh he's the um um he's related to Louis Vola, who was a bass player for the hot club for Grappelli and Django Reinhardt. And, uh, so, but he liked Tony Rice of all people. So he was <laughs> learning how to play like Tony Rice on the guitar. And we got together and had a band there. And that was back in the early nineties. because uh you know uh, we did a bunch of other things there in the 90s and one of it another highlight for me was when uh uh Babik Reinhardt who's Django Reinhardt's son at the time um he's not with us anymore god bless him he died in 2002 but Babik is the son of the famous Django Reinhardt and he came over to play with Francois and I got to play on those shows and on that recording oh, uh, yeah. that they made so you know the fact that I got to play with Django's son was a big time highlight, which is still unbelievable to me, uh, but it's certainly a highlight. And, and, uh, so even now, like Francois lives in France right now, of course. And, uh, but I've been going over there the last couple of years to play with him. And I have a lot of future plans to play with him over there in Italy and France and Europe. And of course, to get him back over here if we can, but that figures into my future, uh, plans. Yeah, I just love, it. and then you have like the um, the stuff with Mark Johnson as well um, that you that you guys do together, which is like more of the traditional stuff.
And I can't, I, I can't go, yeah, I can't go through this without mentioning my great, great friend, Mark Johnson, who, God, that goes back to, God, the late 90s. And then Bill Emerson, again, the banjo player who we owe so much to, knew about Mark before I did. And, of course, he told me about it, you know, about Mark. And Mark was supposed to come up to Virginia to record. And uh, he wanted to get us together because he thought we were compatible. And we certainly were. And 20 years later, we're celebrating a, you know, the Acoustic Milestone CD, which is the fifth or I think the sixth one, maybe the sixth recording we did. Uh, to that point and um, uh, another gentleman I just just sneak in a little plug for some uh, totally uh, important in my career Uh, his name is George Hotchkiss and George is a recording engineer and a a jazz musician of all things but he recorded Cruising the Eight uh, in his studio he recorded all the projects that Mark Johnson and I did and some of the some other ones that I had done. So, uh, like George gave me all the recording knowledge that I have today and ability, and and I can't thank him enough. He's one of the best out there, and uh, you know, he's he, I just you know he often doesn't get mentioned, but I I couldn't I couldn't talk to you today without mentioning him. So, so nice to to hear people tip the hat to all these names as well. You know, people that um, oh yeah inspire and have helped uh, helped move a career along it's great to hear yeah now mark johnson is a lot like i am he's an instinctive player like he plays music instinctively um you know neither one of us can tell you all the technical aspects of, of the music that we play and you know the theory and the composition and stuff but when we just do this and we play you know from our heart and from our head and and we're compatible that way. He writes tunes and doesn't know where they come from either. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of how that's kind of how it has been for us. And uh, you know, and Mark's career has been a great one all along. And you know, he's included me on things like you know when he played on the David Letterman show with Steve Martin, and I got to play on that with those guys as well. So you know, things like that, I'll be eternally grateful for. And uh, that's crazy. From Don Don Reno TV show. As a little kid wearing a cowboy hat falling on the strings to David Letterman with Steve yeah. Martin. <laughs> to the David Letterman show, playing fourth gear at way too fast to speed. But we pulled it off on on the show. and uh, But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, Again, these things are uh, privileges that you know I've somehow been able to get. Everything great that's ever happened to me has happened because of someone I've known and someone's kindness that they were able to either include me on or get me involved in. And there's, it, it's just great. And, and it's, I'm not finished yet by any means. So. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I haven't asked anybody this question yet, actually, but you do a lot of the camps, and you play, some of these camps have some great players. And when you said the uh, Django Reinhardt son, it reminded me of a camp video that I'd seen somewhere out there of you um, doing uh, limestone blue, or Limehouse Blues. And it's just a bunch of great players. And I was wondering if maybe you had any stories from some of these camps of playing with some of these killer musicians that maybe, you know, maybe there's no recordings of or just any cool jam memories with some of these people out there that you've that you've met in the years past. Yes. Uh, God, there's too many to name because, of course, as you know, a lot of these camps will hire, you know, some pretty famous folks and, uh, you know, but... Uh, the consistent line amongst all that is that every one of them, and the list is too long to name, every one of them have been like wonderful people. You know, they've been great, 
great people as well as musicians. So, you know, uh, my experience is, you know, like if, you know, if you might be a little bit nervous being around someone you've never met that has a name, you know, the size of, you know, a huge name uh, that, that you, you know, but the, when they make you comfortable and, you know, they become your friend really quickly, uh, that is just uh, a great, great moment. And uh, one, of, one of the greatest uh, uh, ones is, of course, uh, David Grisman. And uh, that's a funny story in its own because <laughs> I know that you see David Grisman, who I was, you know, of course, I've always been into and still am. Like, he's still a force out there. And it's amazing that he's still doing that like that. But yeah. he can uh, but still, uh, back then, I mean, you know, th- that name's larger than life to me, you know, with what I did and, and what it meant to me. And, um, um, Ronnie McCurry, uh, told David about me and, uh, to the, and I remember getting a phone call at home. This was in the early nineties and, and, you know, hey, Emory, this is David Grisman. And I was just sure that it was a friend of mine playing a joke on me. <laughs> And it took a minute. And when he, you know, he, he, he laughed and of course I knew the laugh and I think every hair on the back of my neck stood up when I heard that laugh because I realized this wasn't a joke. And I went down to the IBMA and met him uh, that year and we hung out and played in a room and, you know, he just, just like an old, old friend and, you know, talking and enjoying the time and, you know, I had to pitch myself saying, oh, this is really, this is a real David Grisman I'm talking to here. But he's been that way to so many and, and so supportive and, and just, just, you know, fanned the flames of mandolin for all of us uh, over the years. And too many stories there again, but uh, again, he's, he is just a wonderful, wonderful person and musician. Yeah, I just saw him. Well, I should say just saw him, but the last time I saw him was here in Charleston. It was him and Tommy Emanuel. And Wow. Yeah, you know, and uh, but but just you know, if it, if it makes you want to play, yeah, oh yeah, you know, so I always hear folks say, well, you know, I want to go burn my instrument. Well, I know they're not going to really do that, of course. <laughs> they're just saying that, but 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 I mean, you know, I, if you see something that's like really really blows you away like that, it should make you want to like go home and grab a hold of that mandolin and just start playing it. Absolutely, till the wee hours. You know that that's usually what should happen, and it's what happens to most, I think. I think so, too. Speaking of wanting to burn a mandolin, eight more miles to Louisville that you did for David Benedict's Mandolin Mondays, man. How did you how did you come up with that? Is that an arrangement you came up with? Have you heard it before? It's so cool. Well, no, that that happened as a result of David. Um, That's another another great kid. I mean, he's a he's a great player. And it was just, you know, that that really does my heart good to see the see folks like him playing like that and then how much it means to him and, and all. So, you know, that's, that's great. And, uh, uh, but yeah, when he asked me to do that, of course, um, you know, I took a look at a couple of the recent ones that were done so I could kind of get an idea of what was being done, mm-hmm. you know, before I made that. And, uh, of course I really pretty much didn't know what to play, but I noticed, and I can't remember the exact names of the fellas that did them, but, you know, there was a level of seriousness in those videos that was going on. I know that uh, I can't, but maybe if you just watch a couple before mine, I don't know, and look at how how serious 
those players were. And then like they were playing, you know, a couple notes here and there and really milking it for the, but they, it was like real serious compositions and stuff. So I was thinking, well, gee, this is, you know, we, we got to have a little bit better time than this. Uh, <laughs> so I, I took an old tune and tried to think of every silly trick I could pull. And like I said, I'm just going to play a version of this and just throw in every, every cheap trick and everything that gets a laugh that I've done <laughs> and try to pile it in here and just do this for an entertaining moment, yeah. you know? And uh, so, you know, it had a lot of different little, you know, brush strokes in it that I think I had from rock and roll days. I had, uh, um, oh, geez, there's all kinds of chords in there that I almost never play. <laughs> and uh, and then at the ending, of course, um, you know, reaching around and playing the string in the opposite direction, which I still don't think I've ever seen. Um, you know, I mean, it was, it was meant to get a laugh. It was meant to, to get a chuckle and I. Nope, I'm pretty sure that's what we got out of it. I'm pretty. Uh, I thought it was going to take a hundred. You, you ever see someone like ta- in a, in the living room take a plastic golf ball and they try to chip it into a plastic cup? You know, and it takes them like a hundred times. Yeah, I thought sure. that's what it was going to take in order to get that done. But I got that on the third take. Did you really? And uh, I was totally amazed. Yeah, amazed at my luck there uh, and all, but. Uh, you know, that's, that's another story, uh, how, how to perform when the chips are down. You know, um, I've seen a couple great players like Alan Mundy, the great banjo player, who um, he played with me at a camp uh, recently uh, down to Swannanoa Gathering. And, and it was totally inspirational because he was, you know, he was working up a version of the song Mountain Air that's, uh, that we were going to do on my show there. Um, and Mountaineer, he wanted to play the notes just like the, you know, like the record. And I said, well, Alan, play anything, you know, like just a three minute stab on the stage there. And he's like, well, no, I want to get it. So, and I, you know, he struggled getting it and, you know, he was right up to the time he was back there working on it. And I'm like, Alan, you could, you know, you could play anything you want. You know? <laughs> and, but when he stepped out in front of that audience, he nailed it. That's the first time I heard him nail it. And like, you know, that inspired me so much because, you know, with the great players, when the chips are down, when it's time to play, they find another gear, they find another notch. And I've never forgotten that. That, that was one of the most amazing things that I've ever seen and learned. And, and, you know, I'm grateful to Alan, you know, that's another name, you know, that I owe a lot to and, uh, but these are these are the serious musicians that know how to step up and, and, and play, you know, when the chips are down. And that's inspiring. You know, I always try to do that. You know, it's not always successful, but, you know, we try. You know? <laughs> Let's uh, do you mind if we talk a little bit about mandolins, like gear wise and stuff, like what type of things you're playing? Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I love mandolins. I can't, <laughs> you know, I'm. I get moss like, you know, like most. Um, and I've had many over the years. Uh, right now, the. The main one, uh, uh, the main affiliation I've had is with Northfield um, here the last since about 2011 or 12. And, and you know, they were gracious. Uh, I remember at the IBMA, uh, the great mandolin maker, well, the great musician Chris Warner, who played banjo for Jimmy Martin and such. But Chris Warner's known for making Marty Stewart's famous mandolin. Oh, right. That's uh, the right. one with all the signatures. Yeah. And Chris was sitting there at the booth, and he said, you should go over and take a look at those Northfields. He said, if I had the coin, I'd pick one up today. 
and that's a heavy endorsement coming from someone like Chris Warren. So I walked over there and met Adrian, and one thing led to another, and the next thing you know, I went down to Michigan there at Marshall, and uh, and uh, he presented me with the uh, with the number eighty one F five, which I had for so long, and it's of course known mostly now for being all beat up and scarred up and scratched up and. And all, but I'm happy to report for those that don't know that that mandolin has been now refinished. It looks brand new. It's a black face. Um, Northfield's worked on it a bit as well. Uh, uh, it was refinished by none other than Chris Warner, oh, the no same kidding. feller that that actually, yeah, he did a great job on it. It's beautiful, and uh, so I still have that thing. It sounds great and plays great. But as well, uh, Northfield also uh, presented me with their artist series, the Five Bar Artist uh, F5, which kind of the main instrument I've taken around and played on the road mm-hmm. here uh, in the last while, and it's beautiful as well. It has a, it's all um, bird's eye uh, back and sides, and just an awesome instrument. And it's, uh, of course, you know they used no, the one that I've been used to uh, as a guide and such so i have those two and um honestly i can just say real quickly that you know i've met most of the great luthiers and they're all great friends steve gilchrist john monteleone all these guys oliver piteous i wish i could own one of each of them but i would have to be a rockefeller (laughs) to be able to afford it i hear you um but just to support them i mean they're all such great artists you know just like the players you know, and they've learned so much over the time. But one of my very favorite makers um, and great friends from way back is Michael Hyden. And um, I used to play one of his mandolins uh, a few years back, several years back. But I've always wanted one of his what's called heritage models, which is uh, the really old, old wood that he's kind of reserved for these models and such. And uh, he teased me with one he made many years ago, I think 2007 or eight, and I've never forgotten it. So I uh, commissioned him to try to, to to do that again for me, and he did. And I now have this uh, beautiful Haydn F model heritage mandolin that is it's uh, the dream come true for me. I I don't know how it can be beat, but uh, you know I love it. And uh, so between that and my Northfields and and um, the last one I'll mention is another great friend of mine named Dale Ludwig, who um, did an amazing thing for me. I actually drew him a picture of an A model that I had in my head. Uh, just And I'm no mandolin designer, but I drew a picture anyway and said, you know, if you ever, you know, like, here's an idea. Now you come up with something, you know, like, like you know, kind of sleek looking and and he sent me back pictures of a top that he had cut to my drawing using my drawing. I'm like, Oh no, I'm like, I didn't mean that. I like wanted you to come up with that. But he built my drawing to the T he made it, he brought it to life. And I have this beautiful a model. We call Emory Lester model Ludwig mandolin, which I still have sitting right by my chair here. It's oh, the one cool. I tinker with all the time. And they made me a mandola of it as well. And uh, so uh, I think, I did a project called Christmas Carols quite a number of years ago, and the two mandolins, the mandolin and the mandola, are on the cover of that. Yeah, yeah. And um, but uh, they're they're awesome too. So between these four toys here, I have to choose which one. I rotate them. I uh, love them all, but um, you know, 
it's uh, like David Grisman told me, there's always another one coming around the corner. <laughs> That's right. He's got that songs. I don't want your mandolin, mister. But he's like, but I really do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love him. Um, do you do you use like a, a specific string? And this is nerdy stuff, but like strings and picks. Do you have like a it doesn't matter. You're just like, hey, let's. Well, Diodario's been our string for, for a long, long time. And, of course, you know, not so much myself, but the bands I've worked with um, have had, um, you know, arrangements with Diodario to stock us up and such. So, sure. you know, EXP74, J74s, those are all good. Um, I used to like to mess with those flat top 74s, the ones that had the little uh, second string, <clears throat> excuse me, second string winding. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, the second string uh, was wound on it, which is interesting. And those things used to be neat. I used to love those. Um, they worked great inside, but take them outside of the festival, and they weren't very good. So, like, it was kind of weird with those. But, but I enjoy tinkering with those uh, picks. Um, um, of course, uh, Matthew there, Blue Chip, is always, you know, taking care of us and made great stuff. So I'm still using the Blue Chips, of course. And, mm. uh they work great for me on anything, mandolin, guitar, anything that a pick's needed on. So, you ever know, like a shape you favor? TAD sixty. Oh, okay, yeah. I use a sixty. I like a little more beef on it than the famous fifty fives that most of the mandolin players have, have taken on. To uh, I want the pick to do a little bit more work for me than I just put it on it, so it does a job for me. Yeah. Um, before I go on to this next question too, I should say you also have, there's some YouTube videos out there of you doing, um, instrument demos for, is it Boyd's house of instruments? Greg Boyd's house of instruments. Yeah. Yeah. If people want to get an idea, we talked a little bit about your, your tone and technique and I'm pretty sure you could probably play anything and make it sound incredible. But if people want, <laughs> if people want a real good idea, if they aren't familiar with you, just go watch some of these videos and just, it just doesn't matter what you're playing. <laughs> it, you, it sounds like you. I love it, man. It's so cool. I appreciate that. I, I've, I've done uh, a lot of things in the Montana area. I've done some solo shows the last, uh, couple of years out there um amongst other places but uh it's kind of fun to go up there and you know take a mandolin an octave mandolin and a guitar and and entertain a, a room full of people yourself um for several hours and it's quite a challenge i've enjoyed that challenge and um but while i'm there uh, greg boyd's house of instruments is there and um you know he always stopped by there and you know, one thing leads to another, and we demonstrate <laughs> some instruments there. And uh, but no, I, I love him, and it's a great store, and I enjoy doing that for him. Yeah. I've got two more questions for you here during this uh, this this podcast, and the first one is: if you had ten minutes a day to work on one thing, what would you work on? Well, again, I'm a heavy believer in economy of motion. So you know, the thing I've always enjoyed when I hear anyone play a mandolin is when I can hear everything clearly and cleanly so uh because the instrument has you know these instruments especially the ones that are made today have such great you know i mean i mean they're capable of such great tone and 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 such so you know just you know um if you're going to play 10 notes for me i want to hear all 10 i don't want to hear eight out of 10 you know like so take the time to, to work on things even if you have to slow them down and and, uh, you know, and I know this could be broken down into all kinds of subcategories and such like, you know, downstrokes and up 
strokes and rest strokes and all this. You know, you're going to do uh, all this stuff, of course. But uh, again, when you play, uh, you know, where is the best tone? I mean, if you, to me, the best tone of a mandolin is when you pick a string open, you know, this, the thing rings honestly, you know, without being, you know, quote unquote, polluted by a left hand finger, right. you know. And uh, so, you know, is it possible to play notes with your left hand and have them sound as if they were all open strings? I mean, that's a, a tall order, but I mean, you know, crazy as it sounds, uh, you know, maybe that's a lofty, you know, goal. Uh, maybe it's something to try, you know, play 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 your song slowly and cleanly and you know if you need to speed it up try to retain all the good qualities that came uh from playing it that way and try not to lose anything you know um so that's kind of we work with that with a lot of good players and and such and, and a lot of it resonates and there's a lot of improvement there sure um you know, I often tell good players, uh, you know, if, if if it's 20 rungs of a ladder to get to the top and you've went 17, you know, go ahead and try to perfect it, you know, to use that terrible word perfect. But, I mean, just try to improve it. Go ahead on up and see if you can get a couple more rungs, you know. You know, you worked on it that hard and that long, and you know, don't stop now. You know, how good can this song be played? Right. How good can you play that? you know, let's see. So that's, you know, we work on things like that, but I have, I have the greatest students. I have a group of folks that are just wonderful to connect with all the time. I love them all. I know they're listening and, uh, you know, you guys have all improved and I I love (laughs) it. And, uh, we're not done. We're, we still got some more rungs to climb. Yeah, that's great, man. And, um, you picked up your mandolin right now. Um, what tune do you think you would play? Okay, so you're talking about a fiddle tune? Yeah, or any tune. I always oh. wonder fiddle tunes, though, but any tune. you got a wide variety of stuff. If there's something you picked up, what would, yeah. what would come out from under your fingers? Oh, boy. Um, well, we've always liked Fork Deer. That's always fun to play with anybody. Uh, St. Anne's Reel's fun. Uh, oh, my God. That's like two out of 4,000, you know? <laughs> right, right. Um, they're all good. Um, um, that old Hartford tune, everybody's been getting into Homer the Romer's fun. Oh, yeah. Um, and, you know, like, uh, but, but you know, for me, I, I get inspired to play things. And, you know, I hear something in my head. I, I, I can't, you know, I can't really write a tune. I can't just sit down and write a tune to write it. I, it has to kind of come to me. And uh, um, when it comes to me, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's great. I have to get something down of it in the first 20 minutes or I'll either lose it or it won't be the same. Um, but still, but music's very personal that way. And when, when something comes to me that, that really moves me like that, that's when I get really excited to try to craft it in the studio and make it into something. And, uh, my album at dusk is full of that. Those are the songs that that had they, those were the ideas that came out of somewhere to me that I formulated into songs. most proud of that record uh, of all of them um but i'm gonna i'm gonna keep trying to outdo that one so uh stay tuned
And then the final question, as it is mandolins and beer, uh, do you have a particular beer that you enjoy uh, drinking when when picking some mandolin? Stewart's root beer in oh, a barrel bottle. Yeah. <laughs> I don't drink. Right I appreciate the question. Yeah, yeah, no but, worries. Uh, <laughs> I knew that was coming. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a good thing. You know, I indulge in everything I love, so it's probably good that I don't. I'll yeah. tell you that. I might be in trouble. I love Stewart's root beer, though. <laughs> That's good stuff. <laughs> is, that, is, is that classified? I don't know. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. No, that's great. This has been an absolute pleasure for me to talk with you. I love your playing, and it, it drives me to work harder every time I practice. And um, I appreciate you and, and for the years of inspiration, and I can't wait to hear what's next. Well, I sure appreciate the opportunity, Dan, and good luck with the podcast. And, and we'll all be listening and enjoying it, and we appreciate what you're doing for us all. And uh, It's great. Well, thanks again so much to Emery for uh, for taking the time to be on the podcast. Be sure to go to his website. I'll have a link at mandolinsbeer.com. Thank you to Peghead Nation and the Mandolin Cafe. You guys have yourselves a great week. If you get a chance, head on over to my Patreon and check out the new lessons. Cheers, everybody. Mm-hmm.